10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Yes, I am here for the Twilight Show. I'm not at a uh, secret Downing Street Christmas party. We are talking uh, PhDs in transformational learning, why teachers continue to study with Charlotte Marshall. Join us, Chriso. Off we go. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show with me Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio and tonight I am joined by guest Charlotte Marshall at Hey Teach Online, an English literature teacher currently studying a PhD in transformational learning and as I said in the introduction we're going to be talking about why teachers continue to study and in the second part, we'll be talking a little bit about her chosen field of study. Uh, so we'll be getting into all things, you know, should teachers have master's degrees? Um, should we continue now that continuing professional development? Should it escalate? Should we be aiming for master's and then on to PhD? Should we all be doctors? You know, there's a, a, a real kind of uh, mix of things that you can do to continue learning. And uh, yes, yeah, certainly it's going to be a lot of fun to explore some of the different routes and why different people choose those different routes. Now, obviously, right at this moment, as we go live, there is a press conference starting in Downing Street uh, from the Prime Minister. Uh, who knows what it will be about? Um, certainly, one of the things that people want to know about is from last year, these Christmas parties. Uh, let's just see. And hello, I think we have a caller. Are you there? Mute you there. Not sure what's happened. Maybe if you try again, we will uh, try maybe another time. We will get some callers in. We will be talking about all things teaching certainly we will be teaching uh talking about training when we teach when we continue to train when we continue to develop uh and as we continue uh that kind of building i want to say that escalation of qualification um let's just see uh if we have our caller join us again hello And yeah, no, I'm afraid we're getting a lot of feedback there, Nayan. Um, so I think we're just going to have to 
disconnect for a second. If you wanted to join us in the conversation by texting in, you can type into the message box and uh, we'll be able to answer or discuss any of the questions as they happen. Um, uh, yeah, and I can see those messages coming in. So hello, uh, hello back to you. Um, you can let us know where you're listening from or of course what your teaching experience is because obviously here at Teachers Talk Radio we are by teachers for teachers and tonight uh, we're talking about teachers and their ongoing professional development. Now as I say uh, right now as we speak there is uh, a press conference I'm led to believe being led by possibly Boris Johnson um, in number 10 Downing Street or around I guess in their briefing room um, and who knows what will be said certainly one of the things that i'll be interested in or the great most for a lot of teachers um is the idea that the department for education were having one of these christmas uh parties whilst in the process of threatening uh some london councils some london local authority boroughs um with legal action for COVID restrictions. Certainly, um, they wanted them to stay open. Uh, if they're having Christmas parties, it doesn't surprise me that they wanted them to stay open. They, they, you know, maybe that was their view that things were okay to do that. The issue is the rule at the time, the law of the land at the time, for want of a better word, was that you should not be having Christmas parties and they went against their own rule. Um, we know what happened shortly after that and we, we, we came back it's some of us for one day just after Christmas uh, and immediately, almost immediately shut schools and went back into lockdown. Um, and so I think people are rightly frustrated by the mess that was going on at the, you know, at the time and what this says about some of that guidance and that mess that was happening, particularly when people were taking on burdens themselves, were missing family members you know, so there's a lot of questions being asked there. So we may, we may get an update as we go through. And if we do, you know, it'll be one of those breaking news moments where I, I stop us for a second and we, uh, we we talk about the moments that are happening. Um, also, other exciting things that have happened for us just today in the last half hour, I, I should say, uh, Teachers Talk Radio on Twitter has reached 10,000 followers. So we have reached at 10,000 followers. Our 10,000th follower, I will tell you, um, was, uh, I believe, let me just double check the name, our 10,000th follower to join us on Twitter was a uh, an account by the name of, oh, I can't find it. It disappeared. Uh, there it is. Uh, Lucia Crooks, uh, at Lucia Crooks. And uh, yep, so a mug a Teachers Talk Radio mug will hopefully be winging its way to her um, uh, to, um, yeah, to, to, to drink tea and coffee out of whilst whilst listening to Teachers Talk Radio. But 10,000 followers is an amazing thing. So thank you, everyone um, who listens in and those who listen in regularly as well. Now, as I say, uh, aside from the press conference that's currently going on for Boris Johnson, and aside from the excitement of our 10,000th follower, we have a great show ahead of us because I'm talking to Charlotte Marcher, who will be joining us very shortly um, at Hey Teach Online, who is an English literature teacher. Um, 
and uh, studying for a PhD in transformational learning. Now, Mal's text in just saying uh, we need to get a blankety blank, no, a blanket blank checkbook and pen. Oh, yeah, blankety blank, I think we're going for as part of our merchandise. Um, uh, blankety, yes, Mal texting in just to correct me there, blankety blank. Um, I, you're pitching it probably a little out of my age bracket there, Mal. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to think some kind of prize from uh, uh, Malice text back in saying, oh, please, I'm, I'm a youngster at heart. Maybe maybe I wasn't watching TV. Um, maybe I missed that one. I was probably watching EastEnders, hence the accent. This is where it's come from. We just had EastEnders on the whole time. And, and hence, even though not being from London, I have a broadly London accent. Um, but... Aside from our, um, thank you, Mel, I sit on a throne of lies and, and very good Photoshop is, is the truth there, isn't it? Really, you know, I, I, no one has met me in person yet. And so I, I could be anyone. I could be like Thor when he um, gets all out of shape in, in, in one of the movies and, and no one knows. And that's the beauty of radio. The beauty of Teachers Talk Radio is that none of you, unlike my virtual lessons, none of you have to see me. Uh, but back to our show tonight. Um, we are, yeah, we're going to be talking about why teachers continue to study. Now, this is a really tough one for me. And so I'm really interested to talk to Charlotte when she comes in about the the progressive nature of studying, because you, you can study, you can do things, I you know, and I like to learn, but I, I tend to learn uh, at one set level and do lots of things at that level. Um, I don't tend to build progressively. So, you know, I mean, I did my GCSEs, of course, um, and then I went on to do A-levels, and then I went on to do a degree. So in that sense, it built progressively. But since then, I've kind of stuck around at a similar level. So I have kind of stuck around at uh, a PGCE and then a little bit of a master's module and i think that is charlotte in the studio there hi charlotte um if, if you want to click call in at any point we'll, we'll connect you oh and uh, i think she's on her way in now so we'll just see if she is here hello hello welcome welcome back to teachers talk radio oh thank you for having me back well, it's an absolute pleasure i i was just um as you joined us there i was just talking about kind of qualification progressionism i don't know what the correct word is but the, is that the fact, a word are we going I, with that? i'm kind of are we legit saying that were we inventing words tonight too that's exciting yeah i'm kind of I'm, i mean I, I i can't really explain it i get i guess there must be a term for it where the qualifications get higher and harder right so like, what, qualification what do we call trajectory that? trajectory oh okay qualification trajectory i love that that's it that that sounds like a, a lot better and and i was sort of talking about the fact that once doing um once, once i'd done my pgc i've kind of hit a plateau of my trajectory has hit a plateau and so i've done lots of things but they've all been around the same level and so i was saying i'm really interested in talking to you about the fact that you're going up you know your your trajectory is is continuing upwards uh, to, mm. to phd um now we are just going to pop to a, a quick ad break if that's okay 
Uh, and then when we come back, we'll do a proper like introduction. You can introduce yourself to us, to everyone, um, and we'll talk a little bit. And then I'm hoping in this first part we can talk about that, you know, um, these different trajectories, why people choose different routes, why why some people might not, and, and all the bits around that. So is that okay? Sounds excellent. Fabulous. Well, we will pop to a quick ad break and we will see you all on the other side. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Boridar Pal, Kruisoi Abitawi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Swansea. Welcome to the Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Nathan Ginn, and I'm joined by Charlotte Marshall. Hi, Charlotte. Hello. Hello. Yep, coming through loud and clear. Um, so I did just take a little bit of a moment during the ad breaks um, because I, you know, I. I, I had that chance to just check if there are any COVID restrictions. I have warned people that there is a briefing going on at the moment. So I am, you know, kind of frantically checking to see what's happened. Um, so we, we do have that going on in the world, but we will try and continue. Um, if anyone wants to message in and let us know that we're, we are now in a new lockdown or anything, so I can't leave my house at the end of the show, by all means, text in or call in. That would be very helpful if I need to quickly pop to the shops to get anything. Um, but Charlotte, um, you're joining us. Um, we're going to talk about um, PhDs and such like and, and, and training. But first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, that kind of career path so far uh, and, and what you're doing at the moment? Cool, blimey, what an awesome question to start off with. And the, the danger here is that I can then take up the next 90 minutes of your time talking about how it is that I, I accidentally found myself as a teacher. In that, it was always an ambition for me to be a teacher, but I did not take the orthodox route at all. I went to university, studied English and history, loved it, decided controversially that I didn't know enough yet to enter a profession. So once I'd finished my BA, I decided to then do an MA because I felt not grown up enough to actually have a job yet. So I'd finished the university experience and I felt as though I was competent with English and history and that I could hold my own in any kind of academic discussion, but not enough that I had very much to offer in terms of what was then teaching. And I kind of had in my mind that I would be a teacher one day, but... I didn't feel qualified enough, which goes back a little bit to what you were saying earlier on is how do we ever really feel good enough? You know, what are our qualifications? How do we validate our position as the lead in a classroom? So I did my master's immediately after my BA 
And whilst I was doing my master's, I decided to also learn sign language because obviously doing a master's is not nearly enough stress. I needed additional stress. Um, so clearly preparing myself for life as, as a teacher, I was trying to amp up all the different demands and expectations and everything else. What that then led me to was being a communication support worker. So for anyone that does see me on Twitter or has seen me on Twitter in various or in various spaces, actually, I feel quite strongly about making sure that all students have equal access to content. And I feel as though it's grounded me particularly well to understand the barriers that we might face as learners and the barriers that some of our learners face. So accessibility was a big thing. Now, alongside that, because I was working as a CSW, so essentially an educational interpreter, and there's a big old debate around that and whether that's politically correct or otherwise, but we interpret the com- the content coming from teachers, that's what CSWs do. It meant that for about four years, I was observing unofficially teaching practice. I was in the classroom and I was communicating content from teacher at the front to the student requiring the access to the communication to the to the lesson. And I was able to look to sort of see how teachers delivered that content, the different methods that they used, the different approaches that they had, their personalities, how they made space for their personalities as a teacher. And after about four years, five years of doing that job, I then decided to approach teaching. And I did so, again, through a fairly unorthodox method in that I went straight into the lifelong learning sector. And I did it as a what was then the PTLLS, which was preparing to teach in the lifelong learning sector. Just to show how old I am, that qualification no longer exists. It's it's been binned off and replaced by several others. And I think there's been two changes in that qualification. Then took that further, took that to a level seven qualification to get the GDTLLS, which has also been binned off. (laughs) Um, That qualification also no longer exists, but it qualified me to teach in FE. Then I did the top-up QTS to then be able to teach in schools. And I'd done a variety of different placements in a variety of different settings. And then I have recently found myself, or I say recently, I've been here for a while as an A-level English literature teacher in an FE college. So it's now a a sixth form. I think we've rebranded recently as a sixth form. But that's been my pathway through academia to get me to be a teacher that makes any amount of sense no it does you know i it's i think people sometimes think that there i'm sure there are teachers out there who take a very straight route into teaching i imagine i haven't met many of them i mean i tend to have met more people who have had a bit of a a different journey into teaching maybe kind of different routes you know even myself i i i you know, I did A-levels, did a degree um, in geography and then took like five years out to teach outdoor ed. And I actually gained a load of qualifications and did an advanced modern apprenticeship and a foundation modern apprenticeship and all of these things, you know, all of the technical qualifications as well. And it was through doing outdoor ed that I went, oh, actually, do you know what? I might use this degree that I've had and been sitting on and just do a PGC and, and jump into teaching. Um, but it certainly wasn't a kind of straight line. Um, and for me, actually doing that, I, I took some, you know, we talk about this trajectory um, type route for qualifications. I took some steps down to do that. As I say, I went from being a degree level, a, a graduate with a degree uh, um, uh, to um, 
at uh, doing a um, doing entry level qualifications to get my apprenticeship because I wanted a, an apprenticeship in in um, outdoor education, and so I was kind of all over the place with these qualifications and not this straight route. Mm. But I would. I never considered myself, I was like, you know, I considered myself smart, but I never considered myself academic. And so my question to you is, at, at points, you know, because PhD, come on, you know, th- this is this is high level stuff. Do, do, do you consider yourself, you know, like that academic person, that, that kind of um, book, book smart, for want of a better word? Were you like that when you were younger? Is it something that's always been there? No. is the short uh, um, answer to that one no and you know we talk about imposter syndrome far too much because it is far too big a problem for us to feel comfortable about but absolutely not unfortunately I am not your traditional academic Um, I have dyslexia I find reading very very challenging I'm very tired by it but I work really hard (laughs) so one of the things and I I remember being in A-levels myself and sitting and, and looking at some students, and in fact, I could name the students, that's how much of an impression that they had on me. And they just seemed to find study easy. It just seemed to be that they saw things really easy. And so I did have that internal dialogue of, well, I must be stupid then, I must not really understand what's going on, or I must not see it straight away. But I was determined. And I think that's the difference, isn't it? I think that you don't have to be book smart. You don't have to be, inverted commas, the academic. You have to be passionate. And that's one thing that I do have in Bucket Loads. I feel very strongly about education. I feel very strongly about students in my classroom, about, as I've said, access to education, equal access to education, making the way for equal access to education, because in some instances we don't have it yet. Um, I'm also the youngest of four siblings and one of my brothers has a photographic memory and it infuriates me that he has a photographic memory because I would love that skill. I would love to have the ability to read something and just be able to recall it on demand. I am that person that will shuffle through notes be going, no, I know something. There was something really important and I wrote it down and it's on this post-it note, but I just can't find the post-it note. So absolutely not. I don't consider myself a natural academic at all. I am someone that has had to reread and reread again and write things out three or four times before they make sense to me. So hopefully that might encourage other people to realize they can do it too um but it isn't it isn't something that is very easy and i think you know it's nice to have this opportunity to chat about it because one of the things we spoke about in anticipation of tonight was why should teachers still do this and one of the things you know why should teachers still participate in qualifications and keep going with their qualifications and for me that's largely because it It helps us to remember what our students are going through, especially if you don't find it easy. So then when the student does down tools and say, I'm not doing this, it's too hard, or I don't understand, or no, I've not met the deadline, I can relate to that in a big way because I feel about that in the same way, you know, if you talk about epistemology, so you go, I can't even say the word, and you're in these forums where these conversations are taking place and I sit there going, oh my goodness, how out of my depth am I? right, how do I approach that then? How do I make my voice heard? How do I make sure that I do understand and that maybe I don't reveal myself as the village idiot? So it's that opportunity to understand our learners and their experience and their attachment to their learning in the way that maybe we don't always see as teachers. 
as practitioners at the front. And I, you know, I agree with that and I agree with it, but to some extent, because the bit where I maybe disagree with it is the PhD is that, that you're getting, you know, you're getting deep there. Whereas you could in some senses get that experience by changing it up. And maybe this is because I'm a primary practitioner. So I see a very broad curriculum. You know, I never specialized. I, it was always about broad stuff. So if I ever wanted to do training, I'd just switch my focus onto something else. Mm. And maybe that's a kind of character trait, maybe that um, I don't, you know, I don't like getting deep into things. Certainly, I'm I'm not good with commitment. Um, you know, I, I, I've done the first year of a master's. I've done my MPQH, but never completed it. Um, and, and and such like, but all kind of master's level stuff around there, but never really because I like to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Whereas I imagine when we get on to talking a bit more in depth about what your, your PhD involves, but studying at that level, you have to get kind, you have to get pretty specific and pretty deep into it and, and stay committed to one focus. Does it, is it, is it like that? It can be. And I think, you know, I'm at the beginning of my PhD journey and I very much do see it as a journey, but, um, you don't stop reading and so you might read so broadly where it becomes focused then you go this is really interesting is it relevant for my research is it relevant for my study is it relevant from where I'm wanting to go maybe not but you value the knowledge anyway so you would read the document you read the article you read the textbook because you are curious you want to see what the perspective is and you don't lose that do you so you're the knowledge that you've taken on board, the the reading that you've done, you don't erase it. It's banked. It's it's sort of in the bag. Um, when you then come to write your proposal or you come to write your chapter, your literature review, yes, you do have to have a few refining factors to it. You have to stay focused. You have to think about your topic. But generally speaking, you've picked a PhD topic. In fact, you've picked a master's topic even because it fascinates you. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing that you're focusing in on that one aspect. So it's not a restraint. It's where your interest is. It's your the focus of your curiosity. So I can understand how that might feel restrictive to somebody who does look at the broad and balanced curriculum and is able to weave their way into a, how all those formative knowledge and those formative interests in years take place but I don't necessarily see it from the same angle. Well, I really like what you said there. That's reframed some of my thinking on it, of this idea that, um, you know, I, I'm a bad, you know, I was a Boy Scout. I collected badges and I collected badges, not necessarily for the, the, the benefit of the badge, but because I wanted the, 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 the award to tick it off. And that's one of the things that worries me about the idea that, you know, when people always bring up this idea that all teachers should have master's degrees um, and, and, and such like, is that if you are just getting it to have the qualification, mm. that's very different to if you are following an interest or a passion to a deeper, to a deeper level. Does that yeah, make sense? Absolutely. And that was something that I learned very early on in the master's journey. So I was doing a master's purely because, as I, as I said earlier in the show, that I wasn't ready to be a teacher. I didn't feel grown up enough. It didn't. I didn't feel as though I could hold my own so much, you know, recognising that I would have needed to have done a PGCE before I would have been in front of the classroom, but I just didn't feel 
perhaps calloused enough, if you like, depending on whichever metaphor you want to use in that instance. But I was doing it as a stopgap, as in, okay, I need to learn more. But the benefit of that, of course, is that I was then able to design what it was that I was learning. So my master's has nothing to do with education. My master's was about gender performativity in Shakespeare's tragedies. Um, and it was very much, a, I want to see how we decide what identity is. And, you know, does a tragic genre dictate what the formation of an I person's identity is in difference to a history or a comedy? So I, I picked the topic because it, it fascinated me, you know, it was that sort of soul-searching moment. And I got to do that with literature as my basis. It was wonderful. But I did it in a, in a year. You know, my master's was a full-time master's. Um, again, just because I was thinking, well, this is my full-time study, working alongside, which I probably shouldn't have done. But I picked it. It was my passion. I have to say, by the end of the full calendar year, not an academic year, I don't think I wanted to talk about Shakespeare for at least a month. I think I could quite happily have had a break for a while because it does exhaust you. You know, that topic does get to a stage where it's hard work and you've lived and breathed it for such a long time that you do need the break from it. And like you say, you know, you mentioned it's a commitment. It absolutely is a commitment, but it's a commitment that you're choosing or it's certainly the way that I perceive it it's the thing that you feel strongly enough about that you're willing to give your time to that so the people that have started their PhD journey at the same time as I do have all started from that do you know I feel really I really don't like the way that lesson observations are done I think it's really punitive I want to look at alternative ways and they feel really strongly about that set of circumstances they feel really strongly about the way that observation is done in a classroom so they're acting on it so I think what you've said there in terms of should teachers have a master's degree well no not unless it's something they feel really strongly about you know I would never say to somebody you should do a master's just so that you can say that you have a master's if you don't have that personal investment that intrinsic motivation you're going to want to quit every day it's not it's not easy you know so there's there's that element to it so worth bearing that in mind that I don't like you said it shouldn't be a tick box exercise for the sake of it you know yeah and you know I, I don't know where that comes from in in me as a person I worry that it is something that that could be applied to the, the teaching profession if we you know if we go that way um, and it becomes a, an arms race in the end of okay now all teachers have you know because I, I, you know, I, I talk about my parents being teachers but my dad I believe you know I, they my sister might have to correct me on this as the family historian but he learned to teach when you didn't e even need a teaching qualification and then he went had to go back after a few years of teaching to gain a teaching qualification to continue as a teacher and then continue to the end of his career without a degree so he, he continued having no degree um, and, and still being a teacher of, of the same level that, you know, same way that I am a teacher, same way my sister is a teacher. He was a teacher. But then obviously at some point that changed and, and we had to have degree level or, or B.Ed. or such like and convert and PGCEs and, and all of those different qualifications, as you say, come in. But if they are a, a gateway qualification that you just need this to be able to do it, then, yeah, that does worry me because it's very different isn't it? You know, as we've said. Now, um, we, we've talked a little bit about about your route into it. I know you've talked a little bit about the the, the master's bit, but if we, if, 
I, I want to know about this choice to do a PG, to do a PhD though. At some point, you've kind of sat there and you've gone, do, do you know what? I, I, I want to commit a large amount of my time to something really significant. Or how did that go about? What was the thought process? Gosh, um, this has been a thought process of about three years worth of thinking. So it wasn't done lightly and it certainly wasn't sort of sporadic. It's something that I've watched over a period of time. And it's fairly ironic. So if someone drops in or out of this conversation as they're listening to us tonight, it might not make an awful lot of sense if you get slices of it. But teachers don't tend to be listened to. They don't tend to have their voices heard unless we scream and shout. And even then, it seems to be that the volume is turned down. Teachers live and breathe education. They know the classroom inside and out. They internally... Uh, covertly test theories all the time they're doing research I believe all the time so will this lesson work out the same with year eight as it did with year nine invariably no never does Um, but they have these theories all the time but they're not able to contribute to policy because they don't have that label of I've achieved this thing that then qualifies it, which kind of links back to what you were saying before about it being a gateway qualification. Because I believe, and this is part of, again, my study, we have a real problem in that we have to constantly justify our place and position in society. So to say that I'm a teacher is not good enough unless you can follow it up with lots of other things. And, you know, how many networking events have we gone to where somebody will say, Um, I'm a teacher, I'm head of year, I lead this subject and I've got a qualification in this. Why do we feel the need to quantify that? Why do we need the the need to start listing out these qualifications that we have? You belong there. You have a value. You have an insight and you have knowledge to give, if you like, or experience to build upon. But we've got to a point within education where it's not enough that you're a teacher. It has to be, well, I'm a seasoned teacher. I've been teaching for 15 years. It doesn't matter. You're a teacher. So this is the, the problem and the paradox that we live in. How do we make sure that teachers get listened to? The teachers then have to leave the qualification or at least leave a part of the qualification to become more qualified so that they can ramp up that status so that they are then listened to. So it becomes really problematic. And the reason that I've particularly made that choice is that I was seeing regularly that I would have various ideas and I would see those play out in my classroom and I would see the benefits, but I would be stuck at only being able to influence my classroom. I might, if I were lucky, be able to share some of those ideas with my peers. I might be able to share it at a, a staff development day, but more often than not, staff development days are externals that come in for the day and then they leave and then there's not opportunity to do follow-up. And so, and again, that's a completely different issue around whether schools give time for CPD that then makes CPD worthwhile, but it creates this ongoing problem. And that was where I was stuck, is that I was seeing a problem with the student body. I wanted to work out how to change the problem, how to solve the problem, if there was a solution to a problem. But that, I feel really strongly, needs to be seen higher up. And until I have the research behind me that says, I've tested this theory, I'm not joking about this, this is a serious problem within our education setting, look, here's the proof, I can then add weight to that conversation that then says 
no, no, we need to do something about this and it needs to be done at a higher level than my immediate manager or my local area or my college even. It needs to be much wider than that. So that, I suppose, in a nutshell, is looking at why I decided to take the PhD on. It's because, ideally, the voice, the experience, the knowledge, the insights that I have almost needs further recognition before it would be taken seriously and that is a really sad situation to be in I don't think that's the way that it should be at all it is how it is for now so I'm playing the game so that I can change the rules is how I see it which is incredibly ideological I accept but I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that and uh, you know I certainly can in you know I my my career situation has changed and I, I I was a deputy head I'm now a class teacher and I have found that incredibly difficult when as you say introducing myself to people with this idea because when I say oh you know when I used to say to people oh uh, events and things oh hi yeah you know I'm I'm a deputy head you know you know it it people would behave differently to my opinions if I said I was just a teacher Mm. And, you know, even they're just a teacher. But the, mm. the, there is an issue in education where the, it isn't a uh, meritocracy of ideas necessarily or even um, the, the work that can go into it. it there is still, um, as you say, a, a qualifying factor that you have to get through of, of people. Why should I listen to you? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I've just seen that Mal's popped in the chat. And by the way, hi, Mal. Um, okay. Because this idea, inverted commas, just. I have a war against the word just. It absolutely drives me potty and it really will get me on my pedestal and, and soapbox and all the other, again, metaphors that we can use. Bell Hooks is someone that I absolutely adore. And she was talking in one of her books about this idea of just a teacher, that it's very demeaning to describe teachers as just a teacher the again this skill set that's required for a teacher I would challenge anybody to tell me a profession that doesn't use as diverse set of skills that teachers do and she was critiqued she had a tenure position at an Ivy League college their university obviously in the states and she gave it up to be a teacher but there was this problem around the just a teacher and she was looked down on and she said but why are we looking down on teachers you've completely misunderstood what a teacher does if you prefix it with just a teacher but you're absolutely right I would again invite anybody to go to any kind of networking event or team meeting where they have introductions and just see just as again as that informal research how are people starting that conversation are they starting it with labels and why do we feel the need to validate that position if you're at the table you belong at the table you you know why do we why do we have this requirement to say okay well I'm Charlotte and I've been teaching this many years and I'm qualified in these things and I know this amount of stuff and therefore you should listen to me no no I'm Charlotte you need to listen to me <laughs> we need to strip it back um, and I'm just sort of reading some of the messages come in. Mal's texting saying um, there um, isn't enough respect for career teachers. Absolutely not wrong with uh, wanting to do a job well forever. Um, and totally agree, Charlotte. Harry's texting saying um, Justin, anything is pretty awful. Makes me mad. Um, I'm just a cleaner. It's not really okay. I'm just a human trying to make ends meet in life. Um, mm. And I also hear it from the other end of the spectrum as well of uh, early careers teachers 
who will almost self-deprecate themselves mm -hmm. and say, you know, they'll bring an idea to the table, but they'll say, oh, you, this is what I think, but I'm, o I'm only a, a, an NQT. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of, you know, this, this additional undermining of, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to say um, the, the, um, the people's, um, you know, imposter syndrome, which always comes up, but th there is kind of uh, an undermining of what it takes. But I do wonder if some of that comes from us kind of holding people up on a pedestal to some extent. And uh, I'm not pointing this directly at you when you become Dr. Doctor Marshall, but you will be part of the, the, the pedestal then of the people we're holding up. Uh, of 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 people we should look to and respect, right? So how do we ever get around that? Well, that's where and um, this there's a wonderful community on Twitter, and I'm a bit you know anyone that's ever listened to me talk before will know that I spend far too much time on Twitter. But there is such a thing as working class academics, and it's that idea of hearing the voices. So being able to recognise that these people are simply people. So yes, they've got letters before their names, they have letters after their name, but it doesn't matter. They're all letters, and you need letters to make your name. So we need to again reassess this idea of what it takes to be a person. So if you think about those kind of ideas of how do we bring the academics out of the ivory tower? Well, we need to put academics in the ivory tower that are going to smash it to pieces from within. And that is happening. There is a movement towards that. And there are conversations about that. There's also no shame in having doctor before your name or letters after your name. Absolutely not. But I don't think it should go towards our understanding of who we are as people, nor. And, you know, you've, the examples that we have there about um, I'm just a cleaner follow that up with I'm just a mum whoa be really careful calling yourself just a mum you know I'm just a human right well what are we doing with these words what are we doing when we apply these labels labels can be incredibly useful they can also be incredibly toxic it's what the people with the labels do and how we that's how we provoke that discussion of well we need not to have this respect and reverence only for people with qualification. We need to have respect and reverence for anybody. It was truly frustrating, you know, when we were looking at the, and it's, I find myself a little bit surprising that I'm talking about football at this point, but when we had such as, let's be really kind about Rashford, let's not judge them, you know, we shouldn't be talking about these people, they're great footballers, and it's like we shouldn't be talking about these people in any other way other than the fact they're human beings. Why is it that we need to qualify and say, you know, they're great footballers, it doesn't matter that they've missed, no, 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 they don't deserve to be the victim of racism regardless of whether they're fabulous footballers or not. They just don't need to be victims of racism. But we, we seem to be quantifying this and qualifying this all of the time and it is it, it is an issue and I think we see that within our student body as well I was chatting with somebody recently and I was saying it absolutely breaks my heart that the amount of time students start a sentence with I could be wrong but I, this might be a stretch but I've probably misunderstood but why why do you think you've misunderstood go for it doesn't matter especially in english literature where essentially anything is is right you just need to be able to argue it so there is that element but it seems to be making its way across generation it seems to be making its way into lots of different elements of our society but education seems to suffer from it a great amount my 
hypothesis, and I'm going to put this to you about it because we are going to have to pop to the news in a second, but my hypothesis, and I want to, I want to see what you think, is that at some point, historically, and not, not so much anymore, but as we have become more qualified, and I include all of us in that, you know, we uh, want to enshrine that and so don't want to show uh, any frailty out of it. And so anyone looking upwards thinks that that person has all the answers because that you know that's the the perception that they want to give and so at some point we have been looking up to the 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 doctors or the phds and going oh they must know everything and and they're probably looking down and going i need to do more research and maybe if we were more open about that because as i say i've done an ma and at one point in my life i thought at least the first part of it um i i was thinking my god i could never do that i'm never you know, I don't know enough. I can't study enough to do that. But when I got there, I, you know, I, I kind of looked down going, no, honestly, I don't know everything. Does that make sense? Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, to get ever so slightly philosophical before the news or the adverts, whatever you need to move on to, the beginning of wisdom is knowing you know nothing. So if we're really starting to get into these people that do wear this badge of I am superior. Well, you've immediately lost the respect because actually you've shown yourself to be ignorant. So, but it's like you said, the openness to have those conversations to learn from one another. And as I've just seen that Mal said, you know, there's certain jobs that I definitely couldn't do. So the idea of teaching primary school makes me want to cry. I'm not going to lie with that one, but I suspect that someone in primary school provision being faced with my A-level group might also want to run away and cry. The point is, and this is, I suppose, a very functionalist approach to looking at society, is that we all have value and we all need one another in order to get to where we are. You know, I take for granted that the students I teach know how to read and write. They don't do that by themselves. There have been influencers, there have been coaches, there have been various kinds of experts along their journey to get them to there. Would I be able to teach them how to read and write? No, I don't have the skill base for that. I can then take them on to the next step, but I can't do it without those that came before me. We, we all stand on the shoulders of somebody and somebody's standing on ours as well. So it's recognising that innate value that everybody has that we don't do. That's my problem. Well, very philosophical. We we do have to pop to the news, but when we get back from the news, I'm hoping you'll talk to us a little bit about your 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 chosen PhD topic. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Uh, fabulous. So we are going to pop to the news, uh, and we will see you all on the other side. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Ofsted have highlighted the worrying fact that lockdown has resulted in significantly lower levels of social care referrals. According to Robert Halfen, Chairman of the Commons Education Committee, 100,000 ghost children failed to return to school following last year's closures and were at risk of abuse. The Ofsted report states that nearly all children have fallen behind in their education due to COVID-19 and emphasises the importance of attendance for the education and welfare of pupils. Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman called for a proper register of children who aren't attending school. She said there's a whole range of reasons why people are in that category and I don't believe that we really know who those children are, 
where they're being educated and who's taking responsibility for it. What's worrying is that we simply don't have a handle. We don't really know who's in that list of children who are particularly vulnerable to abuse and neglect. A report written by 40 academics called The Child of the North has drawn attention to huge inequalities between children who grow up in the north of England and the rest of the country. The report has set out 18 recommendations to tackle the problem, including more investment in welfare, health and social care systems and increasing child benefits by £10 per child. A Department for Education spokesperson said, Our ambitious recovery plan continues to roll out across the country, with £5 billion invested in high-quality tutoring, world-class training for teachers and early years practitioners, additional funding for schools and extending time in colleges by 40 hours a year. We are supporting the most disadvantaged, vulnerable or those with the least time left in education wherever they live, to make up for learning lost during the pandemic. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glynn. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Boridar Pal, Kroisoy Abatawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Nathan Ginn, on this wet Wednesday night. At least it's wet here in Swansea, from what I understand from the news, it's wet everywhere. Um, we've heard a little bit from Gail Glenn of our own news there. I just want to pull out the 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 you know the amazing insight from Ofsted there that nearly all children have fallen behind due to COVID. Thank, thank you, Ofsted. Um, I will try and take the disdain out of my voice there. They've also managed to point out that um, attendance is important. Wow. Um, again, revelationary um, uh, report there from Ofsted that attendance is important and COVID has affected uh, some children's uh, learning. Uh, we've also had, I have an update on um, Plan B from Boris Johnson, uh, the the, the uh, it did go ahead, that briefing that we were talking about at the start, and apparently the guidance is for people to work from home if they can for a limited period starting Monday, mandatory masks in most indoor settings starting Friday, COVID passes required in nightclubs, large venues starting next Wednesday, and face masks required in certain settings, including theatres and cinemas, but not bars and restaurants starting Friday, uh, and some other bits and pieces that I'm sure um, will uh, be pulled apart over this evening um, as people really get to grips with what the new guidance is. Uh, Mal has texted in just saying, my five-year-old could have told you that. Uh, I'm assuming the the amazing Ofsted insights there. They also said that a proper register would be useful for knowing who um, hasn't been in school and I despair at that point that Ofsted have realised that a register maybe is a useful way of telling whether people have been in school to learn. Um, 
Mal's texting saying, why start things a week away when the numbers are high now? Again, Mal, I, you know, both you and I now are not in a country that is under the control of Boris Johnson right now. So I think, you know, counting ourselves lucky, maybe. Now I say welcome back to uh, Charlotte Marshall um, at Hey Teach Online, if you want to find her on Twitter. Uh, welcome back, Charlotte. Hello. Unfortunately, I am in a country that is under the influence of Boris Johnson. I know. Oh, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say. Honestly, you know, I had I had my little rant about the whole DFE um, parties last year because last year I was in England under the DFE control when they were threatening to uh, take schools to court and having their own Christmas parties against reg- regulations. It just seems just. Um, I don't know, unbelievable. Um, I, mm. I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. Um, well, aside from the madness going on around us, the storms raging both metaphorically and... No, I guess that's metaphorical. No, there, uh, no, hang on. There is actually a storm outside. Literal and metaphorical. You <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the one. Um, but um, we were going to talk about um, your chosen topic for PhD. Now, you said it was something that you felt passionately about. It was a way you wanted to go. So can you tell us a little bit what you are so passionate about that you're going to become a doctor in it? Dismantling the expert. And I think in, in terms of your, your sarcasm or your disdain in the voice, I think is just a wonderful segue into that because, you know, where you said Ofsted have told us that it's really important that students attend. Really? I, I would never have occurred to me. <laughs> why, why is it that we have that? Why is it that we have this body of people that telling us what we already know? And it does link back quite nicely into what we were talking about before the news in that how is it that somebody is considered worthy of having an opinion? You know, Ofsted are this auditing body that is supposed to send shivers of fear down our spines as teachers and as practitioners, but actually have become fairly laughable in the last two years, perhaps actually maybe even a little bit longer, but Ofsted have been considered fairly laughable, some of the advice that is said or that is given. So it does ask that question of what is the expert and and why is it that we hold certain people in regard and we don't hold other people in regard. And the thing that I feel incredibly passionate about is that we don't often recognise the power, the expertise, can I say, the knowledge, the wonder that is embodied in the students that we get to share a classroom with. And that, for me, is enough for me to want to study. I want to know why it is that we don't give enough credit to some of our learners and what can we do to give them more credit. I feel really strongly about the fact that there is this maybe barrier between teacher and student and whether that's created because of the label of teacher and student whether it's because of where we stand at the front of the class whether we sit at the front of the class how is it that we've got to a position where we have this this role in the classroom that's maybe inflated to a point where teachers are afraid of making mistakes because what does that mean about them what does that mean that they have then made an error and what does it mean can students no longer trust them? Does it mean that students are no longer going to listen to them? How is it that we role model risk taking and role model picking ourselves back up when we have made a blunder? How is it that we remind students that we are human too? And what are the problems attached to that? So what are the dangers? What are the pitfalls? What are the threats 
if we then make these mistakes because what we've been talking about a lot this evening is these labels that we ascribe to various different people for various different reasons and how having a particular label with career in mind rather than as a societal label can have an impact on whether you're listened to or not. And in the classroom, we have, you know, a microcosm of what society is and we have the inverted commas expert that we deem as the teacher. But what that then creates is the disease that is perfectionism. So teachers are not allowed to make mistakes because what does that mean? Does that mean that they're no longer an expert? No, of course not. It means that they've made a mistake, but we don't see it that way. This whole sort of desire if you like to take this a little bit further started because I had a in- massive increase in exam papers being submitted that were blank they were handing exam papers in we were doing marks we were doing assessments and students would regularly submit blank exam scripts so quite literally blank pieces of paper that they that was all they had to offer me And when asked, I was saying to them, you know, always write something, you know, even if it's just a sentence, give me something, something's got to be better than nothing. And it came and the conversation came to pass that it was actually, it was better for them to be in control of the label. So they would sooner have a zero mark or a U because they made the decision to not write anything rather than have the zero mark of the U because they got it wrong. And there's this fear of getting things wrong because we're not a forgiving community. We're not a forgiving society. So people can't make mistakes and be forgiven for it. They can't pick themselves up. They can't make a statement with the information that they have at the time and then go, hmm, had I have had different information, I would have made a different decision and I would have acted in a different way. And I'm not talking about Boris Johnson in that. I have very little forgiveness for Boris Johnson. (laughs) There is, for students, I think the opportunity for them to see teachers go, okay, I spelt that word wrong. Can anyone help me out with that? Can someone tell me how to spell it? And then see us work collaboratively. So that see us recognising that people struggle. And actually, it's okay to struggle because then what you do is you carry on and you do learn the new skills. So as an English literature teacher, that again, has dyslexia, the amount of times that I've had to explain the way that I process things or the time that it takes for me to understand what they're talking about, to put my sentences together so that they make sense or, God forbid, spell a word incorrectly. But what I'm hoping through that process is recognising that they can see something that they experience daily as well. So we were talking again at the beginning that why should teachers take this foray into education well because it makes it very real to us and similarly modeling that modeling finding something challenging makes it very real for the learner it makes it very clear to the person that's trying to absorb all this information that perfectionism is not something that you can ever really achieve it's something that you work and you you do have to keep modifying and picking yourself up and trying again and trying again and looking at how you then keep going and it's not a mark of your identity. That was the almost the second half of my interest was the fascination that some students have with the grade. So they get feedback on their paper and they'll say, yeah, but what grade was it? And I said, well, have you read the feedback? Yeah, 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 but what grade is it? I want to know if I got a C or a B. And I said, well, no, 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 you need to read the feedback. And this is a battle that we have regularly. So I stopped putting grades 
And I refused to tell the students, you know, it was again, as that little experiment, what would happen if they weren't allowed to know what this grade was? Because again, it becomes this badge that they wear, either good or bad. So, oh, I got a C on that. And so they'd feel sad about it rather than actually it's a great progression from the last piece of work. And you did what I asked you to do. Here's the next thing for you to be working on. It became a part of who they were as a person rather than, okay, that's what that piece of work, that is a measure of that essay or that response. It's not a measure of who I am as a person. And one of the things that I find really interesting about this as a topic is that in my time teaching, I would say almost for the length of it, um, things have existed, certainly in, in the primary schools, um, whether or not it's just lip service, I, I know has come up many times with certain elements of this, but things like um, the learning pit, and I know Seb Ventura had um, James Nottingham on his show to talk about that. That's been around maybe 10 years. And I certainly remember when I you know, first started teaching, it was a big thing that you had to have on your wall and certainly it was talked about a lot. Um, certainly... Um, deliberate errors um, and modeling uh, mistakes as existed mm. in primary school for a while and then of course the whole growth mindset thing which evolved into kind of a false mindset thing um, and whether it was really happening or it was just lip service so that they're, they're, they're ha- these things have happened before but when I think about the, the age of the children you're talking about now they would have been right at the peak when I remember every teacher having a learning pit on their wall um, mm. And so something in the system, either it's not continued or the, the way structurally the system's built, m- must be having an effect on that as well, more than us paying lip service to it, maybe maybe has said. Would, would that be something that you think? Uh, maybe? Yeah, so if you look into Carol Dweck, Carol Dweck is the person that started the conversation about that growth mindset, fixed mindset situation and, and recognising that this is not something to have an internal dialogue. And much has been written about after that. So they were saying that actually the research shows that by the time students are teenagers, they've been through this growth mindset training so much that they're resistant to it. So it stops having an impact past Uh, key stages one and two and so by the time that students get to key stage three and four growth mindset isn't an effective strategy for building resilience towards or against grades and internalizing some of those and yet at key stage three and four we have the development of anxiety we have um, depression presenting in students so like you've said there are problems around growth mindset. So whether we've got the wonderfully decorated posters but not necessarily acting it becomes really problematic. And that's something that I find fascinating that we're talking about an age where students need to be innovative. They need to take risks. They need to trial things. We see this all the time. You know, look at the age in which we live. Look at the way in which our farming structure is changing. So vertical farming, for example, who would have come up with that? Who, who, how do you decide that? How do you create that without going, I've got a hunch, let's try it out. But unless you show that it's possible to do that, how do we learn that skill? So if someone tells you, okay, I want you to be innovative, well, how do you translate that? How do you, okay, all right, so my next idea is going to be innovative. It doesn't really work. So this trial and error mentality towards education, and so we see this in forest schools, we see this with learning through play, we see all of that in in early years, but somehow we then go through a fairly mechanical system that beats the creativity and the trial and error 
out of us because actually what we need to be able to do is to produce produce a correct response on an exam paper so my curiosity is how do we bring in that key stage one innocence and curiosity of the student of oh I just want to see how that works within key stage four practice how do we bring that back how do we bring creativity back into a classroom so that people not I'm just, I keep saying students and learners but people can then practice risk taking and practice creativity so that it's not just about getting the qualification it's not just about walking away with your GCSE and your A-levels so that yes what does the GCSE and the A-level show well it shows that I can reproduce the demands of the the learning prior to that so I can regurgitate the formula I can model or I can respond to a set of stimuli does it necessarily create the skills that we need and that then becomes a really difficult conversation to be having and that's really where I found myself within my area of research so I was going well I want to play you know I want to bring back some of this natural curiosity that we had and I've done this in my you know again unofficially not technical research because obviously it doesn't meet all the criteria to be considered research which is again the problem because we do this as practitioners all the time but of course we don't have the the paperwork to support us which is a real bone of contention for me in that I said for a lesson I asked all of my students to recreate the garden of love out of play-doh And initially, they looked at me as though I was insane. They looked at me as though I had clearly fallen off the rocker and they were moments away from leaving the classroom and going fetching the curriculum manager to say, "Okay, so clearly Charlotte needs help because I I gave them all a piece of Play-Doh. And I said, I would like you to recreate the Garden of Love from the poem, the Garden of Love, in Play-Doh. And in that moment, there was a significant pause where the students really started to, to ask, is she serious? Does she want me to do this? I would rather write an essay. Can we not, can we do anything else? I really don't want to use Play-Doh. And I said, unless you're allergic to it, that's the only excuse. Everybody else, if you've got an allergy, let me know and I'll give you an alternative method. But otherwise, I would like you to recreate it. So it took persistence on my part to get them to do this. And eventually they did. And they each, they kept looking back to the poem. They were pulling out the archway. They were trying to draw out of little pen marks, you know, thou shalt not enter, which is again from, from the poem. I got little graveyard. I've got little, uh, the wall around the garden, all of which taken from the poem itself. And then they started, you know, I didn't, didn't ask them to, they started comparing why one person had done one gravestone in one fashion. And then they were checking against the poem and they were saying, but actually, if you read the poem in that stanza, it suggests that you need this fence here. And so they were working collaboratively and evaluating each other's representations of the garden of love from the poem. And I got to be a part of that. So I joined in, you know, I got involved in that because I think it's really important that teachers do get involved in the lessons that they're asking their students to do and sort of comparing it. Now, if you then start to be really reductive, what you have there are evaluation skills. They were looking at observation. They were communicative. They were interpersonal. They were analytical. They were assessing the quality of each other's work. Skills that we need, but don't necessarily appear on an exam paper so they don't have the same practical application now don't get me wrong you can't teach English literature entirely through play-doh that would be a study in and of itself I'm, I'm pretty sure you could do a research project just on that but to approach it from something 
very different, something very, you know, unusual. And I started the lesson by saying this could fall absolutely flat or we could see the garden of love in a way that we've never seen it before. Those students were still talking about that lesson six months later. I'm not sure that the students would be talking about the poem in the same way, with the same amount of passion, with the same amount of enjoyment, had we have done, sat and wrote an essay. So when I talk about these taking risks and being creative and being innovative and, and showing all of that, there needs to be a safe space for teachers to be able to do it without fear of you know being punished or oh my goodness they're going to go and tell my manager and this is going to come up in my appraisal I'm going to have the slack risk because again that's the fear that's the the punitive measure but if we don't model it how will students ever do it and so how do we ever change the system and that was my question that is my question of how do we disrupt this vision of the expert how do we disrupt this understanding of what it is to be a teacher and a student and how do we break out of those sort of category boxes or the, the boxes we put ourselves in so that we can see the benefit of working collaboratively and learning from one another that's something that again I, I felt really really strongly about and you know I'm really glad that you brought up the kind of key stage one kind of element of this because I, I imagine it would be shock you know some of that might sound shocking to a secondary teacher maybe even a key stage two teacher but an, an early years practitioner you know and I, I spent a lot of time in early years classrooms in, in, in my days um would would be going yeah yeah that's that that's that's how that's how we teach the you know the, this creativeness that um, early years practice and certainly there there is the expectation that there is you know, you are not feeding children the answers it is pupil initiated it is there is no adult direction you know that there is of course to some extent but you know if you find a icicle outside you you know you the kid, you say what what, what are you going to do with that then and they'll say I'm going to throw it against the wall you go oh I wonder what will happen and it's very much that okay well is there another way we can destroy it you know and, yeah. and it will lead somewhere and it will explore and and all of those things happen certainly at the, the, the early stages um, and then something changes now I would suggest I'm going to suggest this to you that part of that is the drive to knowledge rich direct instruction mm. or possibly a misunderstanding or a um, a kind of uh, change of that or a certain version of what that is seeping into teaching and certainly in my time in education becoming very young that you know mm. knowledge rich direct instruction is all the way down in some year one classes I would say um, yeah and so that starts very early and sometimes those are put as opposites to each other do you see them as as opposites it's one of the most infuriating things, isn't it? This idea of assume because then what we <laughs> this is where philosophy comes back because then we have to explain well what is knowledge, and and how do we determine what knowledge rich actually is rather than inquiry because is inquiry not another strand of knowledge? So that curiosity you don't get knowledge without curiosity you don't get answers without questions, so they are different they are separate they are understood in different capacities but they're not mutually exclusive and this then becomes that situation and in talking about you know my classroom and my set of circumstances 
often the, the comeback is well you couldn't do that for this set of circumstances you know you couldn't do that for my setting you couldn't do it for key stage three learners and, and trust me I've taught key stage three learners so I do understand where different practitioners are coming from with that and that's one of the issues of my research it's one of the bigger questions of my research is why did we lose it and at what point do we lose that desire for learning so here's an article how can I destroy it you know here's what happens if I put these colours together and, and what happens if I explore this? Why can I not give a poem and say, all right, well, what happens if you take all the pronouns for he out of it? How does that change it? You know, it's about provoking that curiosity. Now, whether it's because there's a need for knowledge rich, whether it's because there's a need for exam results, whether it's because we need to be in a position on a league table, ask me in six years time, yeah. <laughs> um, because that's, that's the nature of, well, why is it that we're not still? And why do we, you know, we talk so fervently about protecting childhood and, you know, let them play, let them be little, let them understand, you know. No. So at what age do we say, okay, now they need to be a grown-up? Because No, no, enough play, you're not allowed to play anymore. Why do we do that? And, and why do we then dismiss or look down on, and here comes that word again, why is it, oh, you just do that in year one? Well, why not? You know, why... Do we not have fun within our classrooms? Is there not space for it? Does learning have to be serious? You know, some of my, and this is, I'm very, very privileged. I'm very, very blessed to enjoy my job so much. But there are instances where I've done a lesson and I have let it go away completely from what I planned. But it's so much more enjoyable. And I have to almost pinch myself and go, this is my job. You know, this is my, I'm teaching here. Does this count? And I go away and learners have taken away something from that lesson that I could not have crafted. I could not have designed it it's appeared organically but what we seem to be doing is destroying the organic curiosity the reason for that who knows you know that's where is it because we need the knowledge rich curriculum is it that there's a national curriculum is it that we have to use exams are exams the only way all these questions start pouring out of that so like I said, <laughs> invite me back in a few years time and I'll let you know what I found well, I, I would love to know because, you know, my, my current role, as I say, I, I work in alternative provision and my, my main focus or my main uh, kind of job title is um, working with children who struggle to learn in a mainstream setting. And, and what we really mean by that is that they struggle to learn in a uh, direct instruction classroom. And, and, and they misbehave or they can't follow the rules for whatever reason. My, my word, there are a lot of different reasons to unpick in that situation. So I am afforded the, the, the liberty, for want of a better word, of teaching in a way that, that you describe because there is an element of engagement, there is an acceptance that the other way wasn't working. My fear around that is that just because children can survive it, in a mainstream classroom mm. does, does doesn't mean that it's the best way to do it does that make sense just because it's yeah. working for for some and some it's not but for the ones it's not working for we'll let them go to forest school but for the most of them we can put them through the machine but is it working for them because i would argue that it's not working for them and this is you know that whole situation I would argue that the machine is well and truly faulty and is breaking down and it's not it's not working in the way that it was originally designed and 
you know, for a very, it's becoming outweighed, isn't it? The minority is not those that can do well in the system. The minority, it, it, rather it is, it is the minority is those that do function within the system. So the alternative provision, provision rather, is going to become the mainstream provision because actually what is commonly or now referred to as mainstream provision isn't meeting the needs of the society that it's supposed to be serving. And then that becomes really problematic again because how do we handle that and how do we then talk about that alternative provision because obviously alternative provision has connotations of being not as good as or oh it's because you're bad or oh it's because you can't cope and so there's all this again this labeling and this narrative of not being good enough and it not fitting and actually what we need to be talking about is not being good enough is the system for our students the system doesn't work for the student body that we encounter and we're seeing it all the time we're seeing it because there's a need even for alternative provision if the if the system worked then there wouldn't be an alternative provision because the system would work so that whole again the narrative around that becomes very problematic very very quickly and you know there's again there's a lot of dialogue especially in the states researchers in the states have been working on this for a long long time in, th in thinking about dropout versus push out so do we have dropouts of mainstream education or actually do we have learners who have been pushed out of mainstream education and looking at the way in which one is impacted by the other and how, you know, we're at this really pivotal moment where we are talking about students who have, and it drives me nuts, fallen behind because of COVID. They haven't fallen behind anything because the whole measuring system has stopped. It's not as if anybody else is getting on with life normal. There's not a consistent person in this world that hasn't been impacted by COVID. So who, who are you falling behind of? Everybody has had a moment of pause. The significance of the pause, the length of the pause, the, the, the extent, the wider impact is going to be different for each student. Of course it is. But this idea of falling behind, well, who exactly is at the front? And how are you determining they're at the front? And is that a comparable race? Is somebody completing this race on a motorcycle versus, you know, compared with someone that's dragging a 300 pound weight behind them? It doesn't make sense to describe this system in this one system approach. There's not a one way of learning. There's not a one size fits all. There's not necessarily a right or a wrong way. And yet that is the issue that we've got with the system of education that it seems to be so rigid that it's having this impact that means that it's becoming obsolete. And, you know, I would add to that my, you know, my biggest frustration around some of this, the, the is the, our use of data um, mm. around it. And are you, the way we talk about it, because even when everyone was on track, you know, before, not that they were, but you know, when before COVID, End of key stage um, two um, maths, for instance, and I think secondary colleagues would be surprised by this, a quarter of your class, a quarter of your cohort could fail that mm -hmm. and you would still be considered a good school. 75% pass rate, fine. Okay, mm -hmm. You'd still be a good school. If not, you probably be, could, could be pushing for outstanding in the right circumstances. So a quarter can fail that. On top of that, you could pass the key stage two sats in maths without any of the year six content if you got all mm. of the other questions right which means you could be a year behind year six and still be considered on track which mm. means this whole idea that someone moves up to the school and go oh did they 
did they, oh yeah no they they passed they could already be a year behind and still have passed and then actually only 75% of them have passed and the the whole thing starts to fall apart around you because it 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 doesn't mean anything or it certainly doesn't mean what people think it means yeah absolutely and it goes again back to that qualification gateway doesn't it because what does the pass mean so students arrive in year seven and you say okay so what grade did you get in your sats or four or five or six or seven depending on where they were at and depending on how well they understood the content do you revisit that in year seven not as far as I'm aware you know I I teach or I have taught a level language before and I have tutored a year six student in English and I'm astounded by the, the content that's needed you know in the during the lockdown we had all parents going what even is a fronted conjunction why do we need to know what fronted conjunctions are so when we talk about these assessments and these results and we attach that to a learner what do you, what are we doing what are we why do we do that why does that have an impact so why does it inform the lesson because you know, we might look at our statistics and like you say, we look at our data and we look at the student dynamic and say, OK, this many learners in this group um, have all qualified at various different stages and they all have different levels of that qualification. But you would still teach the lesson based on how they present on that day. So you would naturally differentiate to the student body that's in front of you anyway. So what is the function of that assessment other than to then talk about the school? You're not necessarily talking about the student. You're not talking about the individual. So, and again, that back to that, oh, well, we're a good school. And again, good inverted commas, because we've been able to achieve this thing. Well, what have you been able to achieve? What does that mean? And what does that mean for the learners? How far are you talking about that in terms of a very personal level? Have the students been considered within that? Or is it a statistics game? Yeah. Uh, you know, as I say, I have incredibly strong opinions about um, the way that people use, um, particularly, as I say, as an ex-primary teacher, um, SATs data and, and before, because, you know, now we baseline them on entry at four years old and we use that to flight path them sometimes all the way to their A-levels, I imagine, mm. um, and track them through. And it does become a very um, a, a tricky concept. Now, we have wandered all over topics today and I have loved it. <laughs> It has been an amazing chance to talk to you. So thank you very much um, for coming in. We do have to go to the ads and then I have to wrap things up. So I'm afraid it is time to say goodbye. Um, Not a problem. Thank you so much. And yeah, again, it's such an interesting, I can see why you, you would want to take this to further study. I really can. And actually, if anything, it has inspired me a little bit that actually, you know, I shouldn't be looking at higher qualifications as higher qualifications but you know following a passion uh, and exploring how far it can take me so thank you so much for that as well phd is just curiosity on steroids isn't it you know, <laughs> it, it is just essentially the, the way to explore it and i think that's the point is that this level of study is curiosity i'm curious i want the answers and that's what children do day in day out so i'm i'm letting my inner child roam free <laughs> um with that that sense of curiosity thank you so much for having me i wish you all the best and hope that obviously the storm doesn't affect you too badly in swansea
uh wet it's always wet and windy here so a little bit more wet and windy doesn't make a lot of difference thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) we'll speak again soon right off we go to the ads and we will see you on the other side just so i can let you all know what's coming up later tonight on teachers talk radio need support with your phonics teaching did you know oxford university press now has three dfe validated programs to help you read write ink phonics floppies phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, Visit OxfordPrimary.com forward slash phonics. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And Boradar Paub, Kroisoi Abatawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea. It is nearly a nostar um, and good night for me, but what is that? Oh, it is, it's Santa Claus on his sleigh bringing you two more shows tonight. I'm gonna have to stop that. Sorry, Santa. It is two more shows tonight. We have coming up shortly after this, we've got The Late Show with Alex Wright. Um, He is um, going to be hopefully waxing lyrical, trying to save things that we hate or return things from educational past, um, I believe. Certainly, he did do a very good job of nearly persuading me that uh, having to realign my interactive whiteboard was in some way life-affirming and better for me as a human being because I I can't exactly remember, but I felt good about it afterwards. So I'm very much excited about listening to his first um, show. Um, uh, As I say, very different to my normal approach where I'm trying to throw things into Staff Room 101 on the Twitter spaces um, once a week um, with... uh, Tom Hopkins Burke. Now, after that, though, we have on the Late Late Show uh, a doubleheader, uh, a tag team, the the Anton deck of Teachers Talk Radio. We've got Ed Finch and Toby Paincook. Uh, they'll be wrapping up their week in education and their tweet of the week, along with some of their other regular features. So we will be hearing from them as well. So two more shows um, for us on a Teachers Talk Radio this evening fully packed oh alex is in the studio thank you very much there um yep good to hear him later on he's obviously just checking the sound and everything works yep we're, we're, we're coming through live and clear the rain isn't affecting us at all alex um so um that is it oh next week from me next week i've got adele bates um she is a behavior and education specialist author of miss i don't give a bleep um, I can't say that word on on the radio, but it is a. You can imagine what kids have said, Miss. I don't give a. Um, it's about engaging with challenging behaviour in schools. Certainly, something I'm really excited and passionate about. So she's on next week, um, and I guess it is time for Santa Claus to help me wrap things up. I will say Nostar. Um, I will be using a Nadolig Flowen, which is uh, Merry Christmas at some point, which is my other Welsh. But it is Nostar. Good night from me. 
for now um, and we will see you all soon. Nostar. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.